Chapter 8 of The Knights of the Square Table. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Rebecca Wildy. The Knights of the Square Table by Secretary Hawkins. The Lonely House. Somehow or other, we always pick a beautiful spot in the woods for our camping place. I remember that last year we had a wonderfully beautiful site on Seven Willows Island, with a swimming hole that couldn't be beat anywhere in the United States. Kentucky's rivers are proud streams, and they have a right to be on account of the beauty of their banks. God certainly has spread his sunshine around old Kentucky, and the green things grow in such profusion that it makes a fellow think of that first wonderful garden that was ever written about, that had a big apple tree in the center of it. If it only hadn't had that apple tree! The boys were certainly glad to be out camping. We had gone back home in Skinny Link's white launch as soon as he had got the tent up and fixed things safe for the night. The following day was to begin our camp life in earnest. But it was some time before Doc Waters had made the rounds of homes from which our boys came and secured the consent of the parents of each one. Doc promised our mothers and fathers that he would keep his eagle eye on us and see to it that we did not come to harm. I wonder what Doc thought as he talked to our parents about it. He got their consent, yes, but I know he was thinking as well of the danger of our clashes with the knights of the square table. But I know this too, that Doc depended a great deal upon me, and he could not be with us every minute of the day, and there would be some nights when he would be called away on a sick call or something. But Doc depended on me. He always did. He knew that I would keep my eyes open and figure out anything that might come up. And I began to see now, too, that my job was growing bigger every day. For our boys were not the little kids that they used to be, and when they get up a little in age, they begin to think they're somebody and each one believes he is able to take care of himself when, if he would think a little for himself, he would realize very quickly that he is not. But on the following morning, we all met at the houseboat for one last meeting before we began our camping, and at that meeting, every one of the 14 boys was present, eager to get away. So we cut the meeting short and marched down the river path to the white launch and piled in. The clubhouse looked lonely as I took one last look at it from the stern of the boat as we turned the bend of the river. Locked up for the summer, she seemed to look as though she were sorry that we boys would not meet again upon her old floor for some weeks. I remember now that my last thought as the clubhouse passed out of sight was, I wonder if she will look the same when we come back, because I had a sneaking idea that maybe the gang of Pooley's knights would take their spite out upon the old clubhouse once they found us gone. The first thing the boys did after we reached the camp was to fix up a place for me to write. So you see, it wasn't going to be a real vacation for me after all. No matter what the boys do, they always fix up a place for me to work. And no matter how I try, I cannot get any of them to take the job for a while. They figure as how I had it ever since the club started and how I'd better keep on doing it. Not that I care so much, I like to do things for the other boys, but honest to goodness, it makes a fellow feel after a while like everybody else is having a complete vacation, but I've got to put so much of my day aside for writing. Well, 
They had a little table with ink and pen and my writing book upon it, and as soon as I came, I began to write. We had one long hike in the afternoon. The boys had taken a dip in the swimming pool and were ready for a go. So Doc Waters suggested a hike, and they all jumped at it. We wrapped up some lunch and started off, leaving Perry Stokes and Oliver Court at the tent to keep watch. It doesn't make so much difference which way you go as how far you go. And believe me, if you follow the winding creek, you'll walk a plenty without getting very far north. Once Roy Doble spied a kingfisher sitting on a log over the water, and he wanted to shoot it. But I told him I would knock him silly if he did. I don't believe in killing birds that won't do you any good. If it had been a wild duck, why yes, we could have cooked it, but I can't see any sense killing kingfishers. So we went on, although Roy grumbled a little. Doc said I should have let Roy take a shot at it, because old Judge Granberry likes to stuff birds, and he might have been glad to get a kingfisher. But I said Judge Granberry had enough old things in his library now, what with alligators and birds and foxes and such, and he didn't need that kingfisher. So you see how I have to argue with all of them at times? Finally, we came to a place that was once a beautiful country home. The old house stood upon a low hill, and there was a stone wall on the road. From the stone wall up to the house, the grass and weeds grew waist high. There were lots of trees around the place, and I could see that once upon a time, long ago, this had been a fine homestead. We finally managed to discover between the stones an opening, which admitted a drive at one time, but it was almost hidden now behind the wild growth that had been allowed to creep over it. We walked up the drive and came at last to the house. It was a large house of stone with a tower at one end, a round tower with an iron balcony running around the second story of it. The windows were mostly out or broken. The roof was in need of repairs, and part of the chimney had toppled over during some storm, I suppose, and fallen upon the shingles, where it lay in pieces. We beat down the high grass and weeds with our sticks, and we walked around it, and up to the large yard in the rear. A small bungalow, probably a servant house, stood at the extreme rear, and beside it the old-fashioned stables that were common before the automobile came to displace the horse. And beside the stable... Half hidden in the tall grass stood the old family carriage, a relic of a bygone age. How long it had stood there no one could say, but it must have been years and years, for the sun and rain and the snow and ice of years had stripped it of all its beauty. And now it stood there a naked wooden hack, with only a small part of its leather covering hanging in strips and shreds. Well, well, said Doc Waters, half to himself. He gazed sadly at the old relic. What about it, Doc? I asked. He shook his head. Whoever lived here, he said, must have taken an awful dislike to this place. I'll bet you this old house has not been lived in for twenty years. I can tell something by that carriage. It's the kind that was popular about that time. But Lord, how this place has gone to ruin. We talked about it for fifteen minutes, I guess wondering why it had not been sold when it had been vacated. Nobody would buy the place, most likely. It's so lonesome around here. Of all the houses I ever saw, this was the loneliest. Lonely house, I said. That's what we will call this spot, boys. Someday we will come up and spend the whole day here looking it over. Wonder if we could get a peep inside, Doc. I'd like to see the rooms of that lonely house. 
No, said Doc. You don't know who might have a claim on it. And it isn't right to go poking your nose into other people's houses, even if they are as broken down and deserted as this. Come, on with you. So we went on. We struck out again across the road and thence to the creek, and started to follow its winding way to the camp. It was a long walk, and all the boys were tired out when we finally reached our tent. Perry Stokes came running up to me. We've had a visitor while you were gone, sir, he said. At the word visitor, I raised my eyes. Had one of Pulley's pals actually discovered already our secret camping place? I was a little afraid. Who? I demanded. Wouldn't give his name, sir, said Perry. He was a stranger, broke in Oliver Court. He looked like a country boy, though, Hawkins. None of the knights ever looked like he looks. Said he would be back again. Doc Waters, too, listened with a worried look. I'll have to go back to town for a while, he said to me, but I do hope you will take care that nothing happens, Hawkins. Perhaps. It is only one of the farmer's boys who live near this creek. I'll be back before dark. I'll depend upon you. Sure, I said. Leave things to me, Doc, and go ahead. Link will take you up in his launch. I can row, said Doc. I'll use Johnny's skiff. No, you won't, spoke up the skinny guy with a grin. Not while I'm around. I'll take you up and wait for you and bring you back. And I'll go with you, said Shadow Loomis. All right, said Doc with a laugh. No getting away from you kids. As they started off, Lou Hunter ran up to them. Wait, he called. Will you go to the preacher's house and do me a favor, Doc? He asked. What is it? Tell him to give you my guitar, said Lou with a smile. Since when have you learned to play the guitar? Asked Doc, surprised. Oh, I broke in. Lou can play any old thing, Doc. Sure, get the guitar so we can have some singing practice around this old camp. It'll be lonesome at nights without it. Doc didn't seem to be so well pleased. Would that be a fine way to keep your camp a secret? He asked slowly. No more was said as they went down to the boat. But I felt sure that we would have the guitar when Doc came back. Now then, Perry, I said. Tell me more about this visitor you had. What was he like? Perry was about to answer me when I saw him suddenly turn his eyes toward the moving bushes to the left, and I followed his gaze. Standing in the parted bushes was a lad of about our own age, in overalls, with a big straw caddy on his topknot. I stood for a second, gazing at him. Then I had to laugh. He seemed to like that laugh, for he grinned and came forward. As he did so, the other boys who had been engaged in various pastimes around the tent came forward, and two of them, Jerry Moore and Roy Doble, sprang forward to greet the newcomer with a cry of recognition. "'Rube!' cried Roy Doble. "'It's Rube Muller, Hawkins. Look at him!' "'Yeah, it's me,' said the boy in overalls. "'I didn't know if you fellows wanted company or not, but I didn't know if you wanted me to come and pay you a visit too.' I didn't know. He's all right, Hawkins, said Jerry Moore. Rube's daddy owns a farm right across the creek. See, you can see his house from here if you look close through the bushes. Rube's told me lots about the old creek here and about the old mill, too. He was the first one who told me the old mill was haunted. Ah, I said, this is going to be interesting to me. Come here, Rube, and sit down and talk to us. No, thank ye, said Rube. I'd just as lief stand up and talk. 
I always talk better standing up, my daddy says, long as I can keep my feet still. I had noticed that all the while he talked, Rube kept moving his feet, first putting one on top of the other, then scratching his shin with the toe of his boot, then reaching down with his hand and scratching the calf of his leg, all the time chewing on a piece of sassafras root that he held between his teeth. I felt like laughing out loud at him, but I didn't. I just smiled friendly-like and said, How'd you like to take supper with us, Rube? No, thank ye. I get plenty supper over at the kitchen, he said, nodding his head in the direction of his home. I get plenty of everything but company. I don't get to see no boys nor nothing. Never get nobody to play with. Only them tough fellers who come and bust up things. They punched my eye once. It was black as dirt for a week. My daddy says as how he'd lamb em good if he'd ever get em. Too bad, I said. Yeah, it sure was, agreed Rube. So soon's I knowed you'd always camping out, I come to see if I could play with you sometimes, maybe. I shoot marbles pretty slick, and I've been practicing with the baseball. Joel Crouch says, Who's Joel, I asked. He's Pop's farmhand. He says I'll get so good I'll be a bush leaguer someday. Only trouble is I don't have nobody to play with, except Joel. And when those tough fellers come... Who are the tough fellers, Rube, I asked. He raised his eyes, as though he was surprised at my ignorance. Why don't you all know, he asked. It's them knights with the funny suits. They come to find out what haunted the old mill, old Stinson's mill. But they never found out. They never will find out. Nobody will ever find out. So you know the knights of the square table, eh, Rube? I only wish I didn't, he said. They ain't no good, they ain't. Oh! His eyes lighted on the bundle of baseball bats that Bill Darby had brought. Say, I bet I can hit a ball every time you toss it. Try me, once. I nodded toward Bill Darby. That's the boy you want to talk to, I said. He's the baseball captain. Bill, maybe Rube can help your team out. You bet, said Bill. I'll be glad to try you out, Rube. You got a good name for baseball player. But we gotta eat supper first, boy. I'm starved. Hurry up, Roy Doble, and fix us some grub. Roy went off to fix up his stove, and Perry followed to unpack some of the provisions we had brought. Oliver Court felt inclined to assist in the cooking, and so the three of them were then and there appointed the kitchen force of the camp. Now, I said to Rube as we settled down before the tent, tell me about the knights. Do you know Pooley? I don't know any of their names, Hawkins, he said. All I know is what I've seen, and I've seen enough to make me scared of them fellers. We kind of expect them to give us a call, I said. Rube, I'm glad to know you're not in with them. They are, as you said, tough fellas. And I'll tell you this, Rube, as long as you're against them, we will be glad to see you around this camp. Only one thing, remember, please, that we must not let them know where our camp is. If you ever come over here in the daytime, please watch all around to see that none of them are following you. Oh, you won't have to be afeard of that, said Rube. They don't do nothing in daytime, Hawkins. It's nights when you gotta be afeard of that bunch. I didn't like that so well. I always knew that, spoke up Herb Acum. It just proves what I've told you, Hawkins. You can't trust them. They'll come when you ain't looking for them. Not if I know it, I said. I'm going to be looking for them all the time and hoping that I'm always going to be disappointed. And then came the call from the mess tent that supper was waiting. It doesn't take long to make supper in camp. Put the coffee on, cut up a loaf of bread, open a few cans, and there you have it. And oh boy, how hungry you get after a day in the open, hiking and running, swimming, and all the rest of it. 
I sometimes wish I'd never grow up, but just stay a plain everyday boy with nothing to do but live in the woods and... But I was worried all through the meal. Rube had gone back to his daddy's farm across the creek, but his message was still sounding in my ears. It's not when you gotta be afeard of that bunch. And it brought back to my mind the nights that we feared the coming of the Red Runners. Nights when we lay on our cots waiting for sleep, but keeping awake until late in the night listening for the sound of Harkinson's old brass horn. Was it all to be lived over again in our snug little camp on the banks of the creek? Who could tell? I was glad to see old Doc Waters and Link and Shadow come back as we were finishing our meal. They sat down and ate too, and I told Doc what Rube had said about Pulley's nights. Doc smiled all during my telling of it, and at the end he tried to make it seem as nothing. But nevertheless, I knew that we would have a hot time before long. Which we did. End of chapter 8